Have you ever had someone in your life who just stood tall as an example to you, a, a great example of what life was all about, someone that you wanted to emulate? You knew they weren't perfect, but they didn't come across as condemning. They were just real and genuinely admirable. They didn't make you feel worse for not living up to their example, but instead they just inspired you to grow closer and closer to it. Maybe you can picture them immediately. Maybe they're even someone in your family. Well, with that kind of set before us, I want to introduce you to someone that I believe biblically is a, definitely fits that description, and that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, you can read all about the scenes that I'm taking a few minutes here to talk about this morning. You can read all about them in Luke chapters 1 and 2. You've already heard some passages from that uh, section of scripture. And you can grab a Bible from the Bible carts in the back, in fact, and turn to that or take it home and read about it later. I'd encourage you to do that. And if you don't own an easy to read copy of the Bible, you can always write your name in the front of one of those and take it home with you to keep. We've been looking at the family tree of Jesus, as you know, uh, and many thanks to the Lynn family for leading us through our reading this morning. And, and today we arrive at Nazareth and Bethlehem and Mary. And as we look at a few scenes from Mary's life, we're going to see that we can model her quiet courage, that we can echo her cry for justice, and we can honor her faithful consent. Let's start with that last one, her faithful consent. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, starting out here in around verse 26. Uh, in this passage, God sends an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth to visit a young fiancé, named Mary. And in verse 28, it says, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I love that right out the gate, Mary is real to us. She's a relatable human being to us. She's pretty troubled by what she's hearing. She's not so sure about it. Uh, she's wondering about it. It seems a little strange to her. And she might've even been a little afraid based on what the angel says next. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, the angel goes on to say, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You can imagine how this news must have landed on young Mary and what that must have sounded like to her. A whirlwind of, of uh, words there, right? And, and truths and some pretty vast and deep stuff. And you kind of wonder, how will Mary respond to this? And she responds with a question. How will this be, she asks, since I am a virgin? Now, that's a totally legitimate question. And if, you're, if you go back and read some of Luke chapter 1 and 2, you'll see that this isn't the first angelic visit in this story. A, a relative of Mary's named Zechariah, husband of Elizabeth, he gets visited by an angel, and the angel tells him that Elizabeth, in their old age, is going to conceive. And Zechariah's question is not how will this be, but how can this be? He's a little doubtful about it. He actually suffers some consequences from that for a while to teach him a lesson. And in contrast, Mary's answer is, Mary's question in response is not how can this be, but how will this be? Totally legitimate question to ask if you're going to be the one now carrying a, 
a, a, a virgin woman carrying uh, a child, I think it's a pretty straightforward question to say, hey, exactly how is this going to happen, right? How will this be, she asked. And the angel is laying all this news on her, telling her that she will miraculously bear the long-awaited kingly savior of the world, that God has chosen her to be the mother of the Messiah. The angel explains it this way, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. No word from God will ever fail, the angel concludes. Now we hear this and we might think, okay, fine, but I'm not Mary. I didn't make it into the Bible. I don't have a word from God, and I get that. But here's where I want to adjust our thinking. You don't need to be Mary or anyone else. You need to be you. I need to be me. None of us are in the Bible, right? But God has not at all stopped working in the world, telling his story, and you and I are as much a part of that story as Mary or Elizabeth or Zechariah or Joseph. And more than that, you and I indeed have many words from God. We uh, are, are um, given and blessed with a whole menu of wonderful truth from God. As we read God's word, we read that greater is the one who lives in us than the one who is in the world. That gives us power to overcome. We read that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when shame starts to rear its ugly head in our thoughts and in our hearts, our minds, our lives, we can remember the fact that in Christ Jesus, that shame has no place, that condemnation need not stick around. We read in God's word that God is for us, not against us. We read that we are to use our gifts that we receive to serve others. These are all words from God. Jesus promises that if we abide in him, he will abide in us. Romans chapter 8 tells us that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. John tells us that there is no fear in love. And the angel makes it clear that no word from God will ever fail. Mary knew and understood this. Mary heard these words from a posture of belief and faith and possibility. And so how does she answer the angel? She answers with these beautiful words. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. It's no wonder she's so beloved. She stepped up and into a calling that's beyond comprehension. Mary says yes. Faith says yes. We believe God. When you and I take a moment to believe God, then we are opening ourselves to the possibility of conceiving good in our lives. That God has things he wants to do in us. And when we believe and say yes, we are making that possible. Her decision is one that you and I get to make too. Because God wants to do things in our lives. The Holy Spirit wants to move into our lives. The question will be, how do we answer is it with a yes? Even a yes with some trepidation? Even a yes with some questions? No problem. God can handle that. But is it a yes 
when we repent and turn from our own selfish ways, we are modeling the consent that Mary shows us here. God wants to do amazing things in your life. And that's not just preacher talk. It's true. He really does see you as dripping with potential. Things he wants to do in and through you. A person he wants to turn you into a blue, a, 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 as you fully bloom as the person he had in mind when he made you. And he wants to do good things through you so that those around you also come into that same full bloom. He wants to use you to do good. He wants to free us from destructive thought patterns and habits. He wants to teach us how to love, really love other people. Mary was given all of this, this idea that, that God wants to work in you. Obviously, hers was in an intensely personal way that would change the whole story of her life, but we're not so dissimilar. Mary was given something to carry. She accepted that with wholehearted submission. We can ask ourselves, what does God have for me to carry? What does he want to conceive in my mind, heart, soul, life? How do we react when we begin to sense that God wants to do something new and even radical in our lives? When we hear that the Holy Spirit wants to live in us, can we say, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. I don't have to understand it all. And God knows that I won't get it all perfectly right. But may your word, your will, your desire for me be fulfilled. Because God, you are good. And what you want for me is also good. She was at this decision point of accepting or rejecting the call. She chose consent. She said yes. Can we read ourselves into that story? I think we can, because one way or another, it's still playing out. God is working in each of our lives in your unique way and in mine. The question will be, what will we say in response? This morning, we stand witness, all these many centuries later, to her consent. And we want, something in us wants to model that too. So we see that consent. But secondly, as we move through another scene in Mary's story, we also can echo her cry for justice. Check this out. Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who the angel just mentioned and said is also expecting. And their reunion is pretty amazing. The Bible tells us that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, in Elizabeth's womb. And in a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaims, blessed are you, she says to Mary, among women and blessed is the child you will bear. Why am I so highly favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She is just getting amazing insight into what is happening here and the, in the, the, the importance of, in salvation history of what's happening uh, in and between them. She says, why am I so highly favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she, speaking of Mary, who has believed that what the Lord said to her would be fulfilled. And that is the definition of a blessed life. One who believes that the Lord's promises for them will be fulfilled. Now, just as a quick side note here, as we're watching these opening scenes, Jesus has not yet been born, right? These are the, we're talking about the very opening scenes of what would become the good news of Jesus Christ. And in these opening scenes, we cannot help but notice the important roles that women play in the life of Jesus and in the ministry of Jesus. 
And while to us today this seems good and normal, and in fact maybe we're even super familiar with the story, and, and so yeah, yeah, we get it, we've seen, we've seen and heard this a hundred times. But in this day, let's not lose sight of what a huge statement it was that the Messiah, the King of the world, the long-awaited Savior, was, unno- was, was known and, and the, the truth, the weight of what was happening was being grasped and fully articulated by these two women. In fact, in the story, Zechariah isn't even allowed to talk anymore because he, he doesn't even believe what the angel's saying. And Joseph is a faithful, uh, is certainly a, a man of character and, and is faithful, but he's also just trying to keep up with all that, that is happening. But right here, unlike anyone else, these two women are fully grasping what the God of heaven is doing in the lives of, of, of humanity. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch uh, the Holy Spirit move between the two of them. And it's a huge thing that these truths are coming from these two women in a society that would have devalued or even ignored the testimony of women. But they have a full-throated voice in the story of Jesus. And so what happens next? Mary then sings a song or proclaims a poem, how whatever. We don't know exactly how it came out, but we know it's very lyrical, very beautiful, and very powerful. This hymn of praise is sometimes referred to as the Magnificat. If you've ever heard that word, it's just the Latin word for the first word of uh, of what Mary says. It's the word glorifies. And so this is what Mary begins to proclaim. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now humble is a key word here. It is all over the place in the Christmas story as well as the life and ministry of Jesus and in the early church as well. Philip Yancey writes about this in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, and he says this, Underdog, I wince even as I write the word, especially in connection with Jesus, yet as I read the birth stories about Jesus, I cannot help but conclude that though the world may be tilted toward the rich and the powerful, God is tilted toward the underdog. And as we're about to hear Mary make clear, God is entering this world not as the latest in a long line of prestige and influence, the next generation of a powerful dynasty. He is slipping in quietly, but with great might. And those, as we listen to Mary, those with earthly power and prestige who have been using it for themselves will be brought low. And nobodies are about to become somebodies. And the ones the world has so easily forgotten, we now see have been long remembered by God. James, the brother of Jesus and another son of Mary, later, much later, put it this way. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. What is he saying here? He's certainly echoing the themes that that Mary is saying way many, many years earlier. God gives us the perspective we need. If my scores seem low when it comes to earthly attainments, that's okay, because I'm known and loved by the God of the universe. That's what James is telling us here. And if I seem to be especially prosperous by this world's standards, I don't let that inflate my ego, nor do I cling to it too tightly, because none of it counts for eternity. God lifts up the humble and brings down the prideful. We read that throughout the Holy Scriptures. God is entering the world through an average working class family. 
His first cradle is a feeding trough. All of this makes clear, lest we lose the message that we hear in this story every, every December. God, is, as Mary puts it, mindful of the humble state of his servants. Mary goes on, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Here, Mary draws up the whole world and all of human history. God is mighty and merciful and holy to those who humbly revere him. With the Son of God growing in her womb, she declares a truth that cascades in its relevance all the way to us today from generation to generation. God is Lord and Savior, and if he's not that to us, then he's not God at all to us, because that is who he says he is and who he wants to be in our lives, our rescuer, our father. She's not finished. Verse 51, she goes on. Speaking of God, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. You hear these words from young Mary and you, you realize the rich and the rulers seem to be on notice as far as she's concerned. God is doing something big and powerful and new. Here we get a sense, even in these words from holy and blessed and submissive and young Mary, we get a sense of the angst, the fervor of Israel at this time, occupied and ruled by this heathen power with their offensive pagan practices. Mary was ready for a revolution and a turnover and a takeover of the powers that be with the true and right power that she knew and loved so well. The proud are scattered Rulers are brought down and the rich are sent away empty. This is her cry. This is what she sees happening through her son. A professor named Ron Sider wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And he asks a really great question in this classic uh, now book. He says, why does scripture declare that God sometimes reverses the good fortunes of the rich? Is it because creating wealth is bad? No. The Bible says exactly the opposite. Is God engaged in class warfare? Not at all. Scripture never says that God loves the poor more than the rich. But it does regularly assert that God lifts up the poor and disadvantaged. Certainly he keeps a close eye on them in their pain. And it frequently teaches that God casts down the wealthy and powerful in two specific situations. When they become wealthy by oppressing the poor or when they fail to share with the needy. And certainly when Mary looked around at her world at that time, both of those things would have been abundantly the case. But even as you and I today on the other side of the world, so many centuries later, as you and I read that, let's not assume that it's rare or somehow below us, that we might not find ourselves slipping toward uh, that as well. When wealth and power are available to any of us as human beings, it is a supernatural act to avoid being someone who ends up taking advantage, gaining more for ourselves or not being willing. Uh, it's a supernatural act when we don't take advantage and when we choose to share. That's a God thing in our lives. Mary was craving this. She was ready 
for some justice, which is simply another word for love in action. Justice is seeing things that should not be and making them right. And her son would form a people of justice that springs from love because love is never unjust. So let's never assume that we can be rich and stay righteous all on our own. We need help with that. God helps us with that. Let us instead always examine ourselves to ask if we are on the side that Mary sings about, making the lives of the hungry and the humble better, lifting them up, caring for them so they know they are loved and cared for by the God of heaven. Here in the Christmas story, Mary cries out for justice. We can echo that cry. Christmas is as much about justice as it is about joy because God has arrived to set things right. That's the good news. God has now arrived to set things right. As Justin said earlier, it's about grace as God makes us right before him. All this is joyful. All of this goes together. It all lives in the same space. This grace, this justice, and this joy. It's all there in the story. And it's a, this was the first refrain of Christmas, no doubt. And when our Lord returns, we can be assured that it will not be the last. We model her quiet courage as well. As we think about Mary, there's no way that we can talk about her without tagging this third point, that Mary is a person of quiet courage that can inspire us as well. In Luke chapter 2, verse 16, it says, uh, regarding the shepherds, they hurried to the village. They've just been visited by angels. They find Mary and Joseph. There was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said about this child. Amazing things, right? Peace on earth, goodwill to all. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. Here we meet quiet Mary receiving all of this in wonder and in awe, not forgetting a thing, holding it in her heart, hearing things that uh, the idea that your infant son will change the world had to be just the weightiest of truths to land on someone. None of this made much sense. How could it? And it wouldn't be easy, but she paid attention and she kept hold of it all. Later, Mary and Joseph head to the temple for essentially what we would call a child dedication. They run into a guy named Simeon who believed that God had promised him that he would lay eyes on the Lord's Messiah during his lifetime. And we pick up that story and it says, so when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you've prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Imagine young Mary hearing such words about her infant son. Jesus' parents, it says, were amazed at what was being said about him, and then this happens. Simeon blessed them and says to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. Imagine the, almost the chill, certainly the shudder that you would feel as a young parent, thinking about your infant that will grow, uh, grow up amidst a lot of opposition. As a result, Simeon concludes, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. 
Now, on this side of the cross, we know exactly what Simeon is talking about. But imagine how those words landed. Conflict and crisis will surround this boy as he becomes a man. When, even when we think about Jesus preaching in his hometown later in life, and how likely was it that Mary was there? Quite likely. He hacked people off so badly they wanted to push him off a cliff. And this was the beginning of his ministry. And we know Mary was there at the foot of the cross, watching her son give his life in the most brutal ways that anyone could ever be executed. And then I think about how I feel about my own kids. And if you have kids or you can imagine what it means to have kids, what that feels like for you. I've often described it as your kids grow up. It's like taking someone just going ahead and taking your heart right out of your chest and then watching it just kind of bounce around the world. Right. Doing whatever it wants. And you're just feeling it uh, so Deeply, And I can't imagine what that must have felt like for young Mary. Quiet courage is what she models for us, but it's not all that she models. But when she does model that for us, we see, you and I, that we can persevere as well through whatever it is we're facing. Whatever it is you're facing today, whether you're here with me in the room or we're together online or you're watching this far after the fact, whatever you're facing today, Quiet courage and perseverance are available to you and to me from the Lord. We can echo her cry for justice, no doubt. God loves to make right what's wrong in the world, and he loves to use his people to do it. And we can honor her faithful consent that you and I today can keep choosing to say yes to God. Amen? Let's pray about that. God, we do say yes to you. We don't always understand or fully appreciate your ways. Sometimes we're flat out confused, maybe even a little scared. Mary was all those things, but she said yes to you. God, I pray that when you see our hearts, you find faith. Sometimes it's big faith. Sometimes we're full of faith and ready to say bold and loud yeses to you. And sometimes, Lord, that faith is uh, a glowing ember seems like maybe it could even go out. But you see it, Lord, and the breath of your spirit can blow, it can blow it back into flame, and we pray for that too. Help us to keep saying yes to you. In your name we pray, amen.